Uh, hey everybody, uh, we're from Airbnb. Uh, I'm Greg and this is Leon over here and we're going to talk a little bit about um, some systems that we built to stream data out of Amazon RDS and DynamoDB into our warehouse and other various uh, services and infrastructure components. Um, so this will be a little bit more of a deep dive, uh, so hopefully we can kind of get, get some, some, some details out there. So first we'll be talking about a database change uh, data capture and a system that we built called Spinal Tap in order to do this. Um, and then I'll hand it over to Lian, uh, where he'll talk more about improving the uh, ETL processes to our, our data warehouse. Um, so a little bit before we go into the details about Spinal Tap, uh, this is not a, a new problem. There are like systems out there that already do solve this and quite well. Um, so for example, there's a data bus built by LinkedIn, uh, which was originally uh, built to stream data out of Oracle databases and then extended to MySQL. Um, and then there's actually a new open source project that the folks at Red Hat uh, came out with called Debezium which is very similar to the architecture that uh, we'll, we'll go through here, but unfortunately it wasn't really available to us at the time, and we wanted to standardize uh, all of our kind of pub-sub stuff on uh, Kafka. So none of these uh, solutions kind of uh, were a good fit, so, so we went with uh, building our own. Uh, so before we get into the specifics about Spinal Tap, um, just kind of wanted to go over the architectural evolution of the application at Airbnb. So like many, uh, you know, kind of consumer applications, it started out as a monolithic Rails app and largely is so today. Um, but in order to scale the, the business logic and just for sheer volume, we have split it up into a couple uh, specialized systems. So for example, we've moved business logic out into uh, DropWizard Java services for things that need to be a little bit more performant. Um, we have a uh, custom homes and now experience uh, search system based on Lucene. Um, we still use MySQL for many of our primary data stores. Um, and then we have Kafka is our kind of standardized PubSub uh, messaging bus. And then on the other side of this, we pump all this data into our data warehouse. Uh, so we use a combination of HDFS and S3 to store data. And then we access it using uh, systems like Hive and Presto and HBase. Um, for various, various different use cases. <clears throat> so splitting up the application in this way leads to a couple new, new challenges. Um, one of the most significant things was uh, that moving from the monolithic Rails application world to this uh, service-oriented world is that a lot of co-processing logic in the Rails app kind of breaks down. So we did a lot of stuff in, you know, uh, active record, after save kind of things, um, firing messages off to, uh, you know, a message bus in the transaction context, which we kind of can no longer do now that these uh, pieces of logic live in different systems. Um, we had to vertically partition our MySQL uh, database in order to, to just scale for sheer volume of data and uh, connections and everything. Um, so this, you know, kind of makes some things that could be easily done in transactions uh, no longer possible. And we'll have, uh, like I mentioned before, specialized systems uh, for certain use cases like analytics. Uh, we run Druid for some of this stuff. Uh, we have like our search Lucene clusters and just kind of um, various other things. <clears throat> So before uh, we kind of like dig, dig in even more, um, 
I wanted to talk a little bit about the architectural tenants uh, behind this uh, restructuring of the app, and specifically these two at the bottom that have been bolded and italicized. Um, so we operate on the principle that services should own their own data and not share their storage. So we don't want to tie in a service to MySQL or DynamoDB or any other kind of customized data stores. Um, just by virtue of it being easy to access uh, data via, uh, you know, standardized mechanisms, um, we kind of want to provide some layer of encapsulation to allow the, the system to scale cleanly. Um, and by this, owning their own data doesn't mean that another service can't look at a view of the data. It's just that the source of truth is owned by uh, one service. Um, and also, mutations to data should be propagated via standardized events, so we don't really want to expose the underlying storage uh, format. Um, for example, you probably want to look at like a, you know, Boolean is booked field as opposed to, you know, the eighth bit in your flags column in your database. Um, so this will just kind of allow uh, less weird esoteric tribal knowledge things to make their way throughout the system. <clears throat> So our goal for uh, our change data capture service is to provide a stream of data mutations uh, in near real time with timeline consistency. So in near real time, we want to, uh, you know, if there is a change to a uh, row, it should be available in, you know, second-ish latency. And by timeline consistency here, I mean that if you have two events, A and B, if you see A in the stream, B will always come after it if it, you know, was originally uh, after it in the stream. So you won't have these kind of eventually consistent uh, uh, scenarios in which you need to do read repair and you see kind of like, uh, like fluttering between the two, two, two row values. Um, it makes it a lot more easy to kind of write uh, stateless applications that consume these streams. <clears throat> so we have a couple options to achieve this. Uh, one option that is uh, pretty easy is just application-driven dual writes. Uh, so what this means is, you know, I have a transaction context or something, a, I am going to do an update to the database, and in addition to that, I'll write something to a message bus like uh, Kafka or RabbitMQ. Um, this is pretty easy uh, to do and get, like, good-looking data out, out of the other end uh, because you control the data model in your application. Um, however, you need to do something like two-phase commit or a consensus protocol in order to make sure that you have strong consistency here, um, which is fairly non-trivial. So another option is uh, database log mining. Um, so what this is meant, uh, what we mean by this is uh, you have a commit log in your database. Uh, for example, MySQL is the binary log. Uh, DynamoDB provides a streams API. Um, and then all we need to do is process that stream and standardize uh, on some kind of uniform event type. Uh, so this makes consistency very easy. We just leverage the commit log semantics and all the locking that the database is doing. Um, but it makes it kind of hard to uh, parse. Uh, DynamoDB actually provides a very nice API, but digging into the MySQL binary log is uh, not the easiest thing in the world. Um, so we, we chose to do the database log mining approach here on the, the principle that parsing will be easier than consensus. Uh, and many libraries and APIs already exist to make this, this easier. Um, and it, it, our goal for timeline consistency, it, it, it was a very natural fit to just look at the database change log. <clears throat> 
So this is kind of the data ecosystem, a very simplified view of the data ecosystem, but the data ecosystem centered around this idea of change data capture. So we'll have many services up here uh, effectively writing to some primary store, which exposes a database change log. Um, and that is processed by this Spinal Tap change data capture service. Uh, this data is then pumped into Kafka, and then uh, we have a, another class of uh, applications that are like asynchronously co-processing these streams coming into Kafka and providing that nicer abstraction on top of the uh, original event. So Spinal Tap isn't really in the business of saying uh, this should be the Boolean flag and not your flags column, but the original service implementer uh, also has the ability to implement an asynchronous coprocessor that is basically a UDF that pumps things back into Kafka and we can read those nicer events downstream uh, for you know, asynchronous business logic or in the warehouse. Um, and this, this HBase component here I wanted to call out because this is what Leon uh, will go into in a little bit more detail. But we're also leveraging this uh, process in HBase uh, in order to create these immutable views of, uh, of, of data in our warehouse that people can then run MapReduce jobs or Spark jobs on. <clears throat> so the concrete requirements for this Spinal Tap service are, like I mentioned, uh, timeline consistency with at least once message delivery. Uh, we should be able to easily add new sources to consume. So what I mean by that is if we have a new uh, MySQL instance, we should be able to uh, start consuming and producing events from that uh, database change log uh, without disrupting the existing uh, streams. Um, we should be able to support low latency and high throughput use cases. Uh, so the low latency one is kind of obvious. We need to be able to do things like cache invalidation, it should be flowing through the system as quickly as possible, um, probably kind of event level, uh, event level, not like micro batch or anything. Um, but for better or worse, we have a lot of, uh, you know, rake tasks that do important things that we were running on like cron schedules that touch a lot of rows. So we don't want the system to choke uh, when we have these kind of big batches, uh, big, big batch use cases. Um, this system should also have high availability with automatic failover. Uh, this is mostly important for when we want to do rolling restarts um, and make sure that all the streams are viewable in a consistent way uh, downstream so nobody's really aware of any weirdness that, uh, or potential weirdness that we would introduce. And we, you know, with the tenant of services owning their own data, we don't want to tie ourselves to any particular uh, database implementation. Um, so, you know, we have the two use cases of MySQL and Amazon DynamoDB, but we may have other things that we need to uh, be able to process later. <clears throat> so, I want to dive a little bit into the uh, MySQL uh, commit log or the binary log for those who aren't, aren't super familiar. Uh, so, basically, you have uh, these two components, like the DML. Um, so, we're using the InnoDB storage engine, so this is largely only applicable to that. Um, but we have both the DML in the binary log, so you'll see something for a given transaction like the query event, which table it was for, uh, your write rows, update rows, delete rows, which map to like inserts, updates, and deletes, uh, and then a final commit event. Um, so this is the event group in the binary log. In addition to that, we uh, 
we logged the DDL, so we'll, we're able to kind of know for which reason, regions of bin log uh, there is, you know, some specific schema applies to a specific region of bin log, which becomes in increasingly important as we do rapid product development and change those things all the time. So luckily there's a pretty good Java library uh, for parsing the binary log. Um, if you want to check it out, there's the uh, GitHub repo. Uh, and we've had pretty good experience with this. Uh, we're running actually an older version. I think a lot of things have been fixed, but <clears throat> definitely not the most sketchy part of the system. Pretty good. Um, so one important thing that we need to uh, kind of extract out of the binary log um, here is a logical clock. So what I mean by that is that each event in the bin log should have a corresponding monotonically increasing logical ID. So this allows us to disambiguate downstream, uh, you know, if, even if we have to roll back the Kafka stream, we know exactly which event was the, the last one and we don't have to rely on anything outside of MySQL, introduce any potential more complexity. Um, you may ask what happens during a MySQL failover. Uh, so we have this single master multi-AZ setup. So fortunately, the uh, MySQL uh, and InnoDB files are actually preserved during a failover, so the binary log doesn't actually change. This uh, stands in contrast to a typical MySQL deployment where you may have a completely separate machine with its own binary log. Um, you know, that you'll then start parsing after that master starts taking writes. So this just is convenient. We don't have to worry about that, but that is totally solvable via introducing some, some more metadata. <clears throat> and then we leverage that XID event. It's kind of an InnoDB implementation detail, so this is where it kind of starts to get, to get a little hairy in uh, our assumptions, um, but, you know, that's kind of the trade-off for doing this data database log mining approach. Uh, but we checkpoint only on this, uh, this, this event to make sure that we're processing transactions uh, as units. We don't kind of come back after a failure and start in the middle and screw everything up. For uh, DynamoDB, uh, we're using the Streams Kinesis adapter, the high-level one, uh, which has a couple, a couple guarantees that we're building off of. Uh, each stream record will appear exactly once in the stream, so it kind of makes it simpler. Uh, to process things. Uh, the stream records appear in the same sequence, uh, which allows us to achieve that timeline consistency guarantee. Um, however, getting a monotonically increasing logical clock is a little bit hard because of the way uh, DynamoDB shards uh, will split. Um, so we have the sequence number in here, but we also kind of need to incorporate that parent-child splitting semantics, uh, which we have punted on at the current moment because we're mostly just using this to, to update some some indexes and everything that I kind of don't really need to know. Um, they have strong consistency guarantees because we can always rebootstrap them. <clears throat> so our goal in the system is to kind of, you know, square peg, round hole, both of these things in this idea of an abstract mutation. So we can continue to add these, uh, these sources as they, you know, use cases demand. Um, so uh, the components here, we have that monotonically increasing ID. Um, so this is just, you know, some long value that, uh, you know, s services and systems downstream can use. We'll have the, the opcode, you know, it's pretty simple, insert, update, delete. Um, and by the way, we have like this, uh, in MySQL, we, we use row-based uh, bin logging in order to have both the before image of a row and the after image of the row. So. Um, you know, for these different operations, they might be null when you insert. There's obviously no before image uh, when you update. They're both non-null. Um, but 
it's kind of the, the nicest way. If you wanted to look at a delta, you could compute that using both the after image and the before image. Um, and we want to, and we have just, you know, a blob of metadata for specific things that are, are relevant to the uh, specific implementation that, you know, we'll, we can support, but people probably shouldn't be using on a regular basis, like maybe MySQL uh, instance name. Um, but the idea is that we can encode this in a source agnostic format, so you don't really have to worry about whether this was a 32-bit or 64-bit integer in MySQL. It's just a thrift uh, integer type, right? Um, and then we can write this uh, generic object to a message bus, in our case, Kafka. Um, but you could do it basically to anything. We have some other uh, libraries around our, our message bus infrastructure in order to change that out if we ever need to. Highly un unlikely that we'll do that, though. Um, so now I want to talk a little bit about how we uh, deploy this, this service as a, in, a, in a kind of clustered environment. So. Our goal here is to basically allow uh, distribution of these workloads uh, evenly across a set of machines, be able to add and remove these things at will, um, and then make sure that during failures, uh, one can take over the work and have that workload distributed evenly. So to accomplish this, we're using a, a Zookeeper-based uh, framework called Apache Helix. Um, what this basically gives you is a uh, distributed state machine abstraction, so you can just implement callbacks on, you know, I'm going from offline to standby to leader, that kind of stuff. And then we'll use the leader standby model in this case in order to make sure that only one, uh, one worker is processing the one source at any given time. Uh, this, we <clears throat> excuse me, we also get a couple uh, nice-to-haves uh, from, from this framework. Uh, we can dynamically change source configuration without uh, resetting these instances. Um, so, for example, we set up a Helix resource uh, for each of these sources, and then we can dynamically change the table whitelist of the things that we want to be uh, producing to the message bus uh, at runtime without any downtime. We also leverage a feature of uh, Helix called instance group tagging in order to separate the MySQL and DynamoDB nodes. Uh, so. It's basically homogeneous uh, source types on a subset of nodes in the cluster. Um, this isn't so much for uh, workload, you know, isolation and everything, but if we need to make, you know, code changes to one of these things, we shouldn't really be impacting the, uh, the other stuff. Uh, like, we, we are working on the DynamoDB one much more actively than the MySQL one that has stabilized, so we don't really want to screw up all the MySQL stuff uh, when we push new changes. So if one of these nodes fails, we basically are aware of that via the, uh, you know, the Zookeeper connection, uh, ephemeral nodes all, all dying, and then the controller component here will be able to elect another replica of that, of that uh, source worker on another machine, and then we won't really like, miss a beat in the, uh, the processing. So one thing that we need to do here in order to introduce no new inconsistency from our system is maintain this idea of a, uh, a leader epoch. So whenever a uh, partitioner, like a, a worker for a given source asserts leadership, it will update a monotonically increasing counter in Zookeeper and will propagate that information uh, for that leader's uh, lifetime 
downstream in the events. Um, so a client can d unambiguously process events and know about these state transitions without really needing to know about uh, what happened in the cluster. So you can think about this monotonically increasing ideas. You know, the first part is the leader epoch. You always filter out everything that's less than uh, the highest one you've seen. And then in the case of MySQL, we have like uh, bin log file and bin log position. But then again, we abstract that away from the the clients, and they really just have to worry about some one monotonically increasing ID. <clears throat> so like I mentioned before, we uh, use Kafka for our, our PubSub. And Kafka was kind of, uh, I'm sure mo a lot of you are familiar, it was born as a kind of firehose-oriented system for clickstream data, um, but then was modified throughout its lifetime in order to, to support more uh, workloads that required more durability. Um, However, it's a little esoteric to configure it to, to support these things, so I just kind of put these things down here if you're interested in doing something similar for yourself. Uh, but basically what this configuration gives you is uh, three replicas of all the data. Um, this min in sync replicas configuration says that it should always, it should never take a new write unless two replicas are there acknowledging it. And this request required acts uh, configuration says that it shouldn't uh, respond to the client unless everybody did acknowledge. Um, so it's a little, little subtle, it's kind of out of the scope of this talk, but uh, those, are, those are the ones that you'll need to worry about if you, if you wanna do something similar. Um, but basically this, this system allows us to push all the data into Kafka, have it be durable, and all these asynchronous coprocessors and downstream workers can be sure that uh, that data came in it's available, they can, they can rely on it as if they were doing something like an after-save uh, after callback in process in, in, in Active Record. <clears throat> so even when things go wrong in here, you can have catastrophes, you know, Kafka nodes die. Uh, we'll make sure to keep 24 hours of the MySQL binary log, and we can alert on, on, problems, on problems in this lower tier, and then always rewind to an, an earlier state and push all the data through. Uh, so this gives us that at least once uh, delivery guarantee uh, with a, a high amount of reliability. We trust uh, RDS to be to be pretty to pretty pretty good about that. Um, but to be even more paranoid, we have an out of band online validation component. So um, the bin log is uh, available in MySQL after it becomes flush and it's immutable, so you can just download it and process it. Um, so what we do is have this other system that does that at a slower pace, so this is happening more in batch, and it'll check for holes and ordering violations by consuming that stream that we published to Kafka. Um, so this allows us to maintain low latency and have high confidence in the consistency of the stream. Um, and we can also use it for something like auto-healing. Uh, these, these alerts can be fed back into the primary system or the online validation system can act as kind of a controller and then reset that bin log position to an earlier earlier point if we detect too many failures in the in the system. <clears throat> so just to kind of close out this this component, just want to talk about some some weird production lessons that we learned. Uh, like I mentioned before, the schema changes kind of throw a wrench in, in these gears. Um, you need to store the schema history store for, for basically every region of the commit log in order to support the rewind and interpretation of things downstream. Um, 
So what we what we are kind of doing, and like we have like various various solutions for this. It's a little bit more manual, and we're we're working on it. But basically, what you can do is parse that DDL that's in the commit log, and do something like apply to a local MySQL. You can look at the columns that were changed in in this Java process. But basically, some somehow reconstruct what the schema looks like for specific regions of bin log, and this persists that to somewhere like like Zookeeper. Um, another thing that we ran into uh, were MySQL table encoding. So, like, if you have a, a table that's in Latin 1 or UTF-8 or something like that, that'll start to act weird downstream and in these bin log parsing libraries. So, something to keep in mind. Um, something that we saw at a, at a bigger scale is that this uh, Kafka configuration could potentially hit every broker. So, you know, you're kind of tying your, your fate to the slowest guy in there, and uh, we saw a lot of, like, bad variance in, uh, in, the, in the produce uh, times and throughput. So uh, we kind of added a slight, slight hack in order to group things more nicely with knowledge of how things were partitioned in Kafka on the uh, producer side. And then, you know, like I mentioned before, we had these cases in which there, there are throughput latency concerns, uh, so we needed to add some knobs there in order to make sure that we could handle on a per-source basis um, these different styles of workload. So to kind of recap and see this, this in, a, in a different picture with, or with more context, uh, we have all these services generating all these mutations, uh, persisting those initially to uh, an OLTP-style store like MySQL or DynamoDB. And then we stream those mutations, process them using SpinalTap. Uh, we have all of this data pumping into Kafka uh, that can be processed by asynchronous coprocessors. And later on, other asynchronous consumers can process that data, and we pump it into uh, HBase and thus the warehouse. And I, with that, I'll hand it over to Lian, who will talk a little bit how we use this for DB exports. Thanks, uh, Greg, for the for talk about the spell type, which is the key punk component to develop this streaming ETL job to move the data from the RDS to the to the warehouse land. So people can literally using the warehouse as a read replica of the RDS or DynamoDB, and they can run any arbitrary computation query against this database. So let's go into some details. Uh, so this is the basic architecture of data warehouse uh, before we have the streaming world. Uh, we have a one gold HDFS cluster, which has the, you know, the Hive data and all these like, warehouse data. And we also have a silver warehouse. We have two warehouse to, in order for the disaster recovery purpose, also the resource isolation purpose. Um, people can run very high important, like uh, high SL jobs in the gold cluster. And also um, people can run uh, like any arbitrary or ad hoc jobs on the silver. People can run different query engine like a Presto, Hive, or Spark. And we also have a um, batch job scheduling system called Airflow, which can schedule this large batch job with like multiple dependency. So where the data come from? The most of data come from two places. One is the database change. Like when you have make a database mutation in the production, you want to capture that in your warehouse. So you can do analytics queries. The other is analytics events, which is usually issued by the web tier or different various services. So um, when the system growing, we get a, a lot of new requirements saying people want to get more recent data in the warehouse. They want to run these queries again, most fresh data, so they can run uh, more effective jobs. 
And uh, for the analytics event, we, we can do hourly partitions so people can get most recent data, and it's fairly uh, reasonable. But for the database mutation, we have some challenges. And uh, the mainly is because we're using the point-in-time restore semantics to get the database snapshot. So um, the, um, the way it works is we issued, like, a, on the daily boundary, like a 0, zero UTC, we issued a point-in-time restore request to RDS. So RDS will restore a new instance for us, which has captured all the data changed up to that day boundary. So we basically scoop all the change from the RDS and dump it into the Hive warehouse. The good part is this solution is very simple. It's very easy to read about the correctness. They can capture all the schema change nicely. And it's very consistent. You get, literally get all the mutation before the 00 UTC, the day boundary. The problem is, as the database grows, every time you do the restore, it takes longer and longer. For our biggest database, it could take more than 20 hours to restore one instance. That means the data in the warehouse is super stale. And uh, a lot of pipeline cannot be run there. And the, 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 all the feature training is using the stale data. That's not the idea what we want to live in. Another thing is we get a lot of new requirements. People want to query this data in a new real-time fashion. They, can want to, they want to run any arbitrary, like a press or hive query against their set. And people want to create hourly snapshot instead of daily so they can run anomaly detection on an hourly basis instead of daily basis. And when we need to able to store this hourly snapshot in a very low storage cost, if we store them like a literally every hour partition, basically we need to repeat store the same mutation repeatedly until that row is deleted. So it's a lot of challenge over there. We believe that these challenges is like a very common for a lot of RDS users, and uh, we come up with a very general solution, and we hope we can share that solutions to the audience so we can, um, we can share some lessons over there. So the, that's the basic system we build, we call uh, streaming DB export. It's a real-time like a streaming ETL job to transfer the RDS mutations into the warehouse. To make the warehouse literally as a read replica, it's a few minutes behind with the RDS and the people can read different query engine on top of it. Basically, when the mutation happens in the RDS, the spinner tab, uh, Greg just mentioned, they will listen on the bin log changes and publish all these mutations into Kafka. Then we will run a Spark streaming job to consume all these mutations and replay them in HBase in the same order. So now HBase starts to have all the delta changes in the database. And in order to capture the comprehensive view of the database, we need also to receive the baseline of the, of the, of the RDS tables. So we can receive it from um, RDS directly, or we can receive it from high partitions, like yesterday's snapshot view. So once we have the comprehensive view in edge base, people can run different kind of queries from high press and Spark. We build various connectors to help people to um, run this uh, new real-time query against edge base. And periodically, we can also compact HBase and dump the most recent view to HDFS on a daily basis, so all this batch pipeline can be can run there. In addition to that, we build a unified view on top of this streaming data and the snapshot data. In that way, you, from a user perspective, they are seeing the same schema, the semantics, from the streaming table and the snapshot table. 
So multiple computation logic from streaming job, from analytics job, or from interactive query, they can use the same computation logic against these different data sources. That's our starting point to implement the Lambda architecture at the warehouse. There's a lot of data movement between HBase and HDFS, and we want to share some common techniques how to um, mitigate all these like a performance hit and uh, um, it's make it more efficient. The first one is uh, we need to take hourly snapshot of the database. Um, the hourly snapshot, if we move all the data from HBase to HDF in an hourly basis, basically it's very costly in terms of I.O. as instant network bandwidth. So we, the, the way we did is we take a snapshot of HBase, which is a zero copy. It's all using the HDF symbolic links. So there's no copy over there. And we build a view on top of the Hive table. And the people can query this Hive table as if they are querying the HDF data. But underneath, they are transformed to the HBase call so that uh, we don't need to copy any data from HBase to HDFS. The other thing is when we want to receive the HBase uh, from, H, uh, from HDFS, uh, if we simply using the put request to go against HBase, they will be very disruptive for HBase performance. The read performance will be uh, suffered. And also, it takes a long time. So the way we did this, we run some jobs batch jobs to transform all these HDFS files, prepare them into an HBase format, it's called HFile, and the bug upload to HBase. In that way, they don't have any impact on the HBase side. Here's how, here's how I, uh, we onboard new tables initially. Um, when we want to onboard new tables, they start to listen to all the streaming from the span tab. Once you get all this data into the edge base, we need to receive either from the RDS, we build some connector, we can read from RDS directly to receive the edge base, or we can receive from the high partitions. So in order to make this pipeline super reliable, we need to be, we need to be able to torrent multiple failures. Due to the schema we designed, we can talk about the schema later, but due to the schema we designed, all the writes into edge base is idempotent and they can handle kind of duplicate writes nicely. So all we want is the exact, uh, at least once semantics from the streaming processing. And uh, we maintain all these checkpoints of different like uh, streaming source and checkpoint them version by timestamp into the edge base itself. So in the case, if the streaming job failed, we were able to restart from where they left. And in case they run into multiple failures, and all some bad code or bad configuration is being pushed, we will be able to rewind to a particular timestamp before the, the failure happens. And in the worst case, if the entire streaming is being disrupted by like a corrupted data or whatever, like Kafka is down totally, in that case, we can totally forget about checkpoint, read from the latest, and receive from there. Now we can talk about more about the, um, the schema we designed in the HBase, how we replay all these like bin log mutations in HBase. The first key part to design the HBase schema is how we design the key space. Uh, literally, we have hundreds of tables need to export into HBase. And if we create one HBase table for each RDS table, it's gonna cause a lot of metadata in HBase. There's no way we can scale in that way and causing a lot of operational chaos. 
So the first thing we did was we multiplexed multiple RDS tables in a single edge-based table. The, other, the, the second requirement is a lot of streaming query or interactive query need to query the primary keys for a given database or table. And so we need a very fast point lookup in HBase for given primary keys. And in most of cases, we need to sequential scan the entire table. So that means all the row keys for a given table need to be landed continuously for in each HBase region. So we can be benefit from the sequential scan performance for HBase. Last but not least, we need to be load balanced across multiple regions. We don't need, we don't want to have a single region is hotspot and causing the performance degradation. So here's how we design the HBase schemas. First, we do a hash about the RDS table name plus multiple um, primary keys combination, get the hash number. During the hash number, we figure out which region it belongs to. Instead of using the hash key, we actually find out what's the region star key for that particular hash. We pre-split the HBase table into a fixed number of shards, so we know for that particular hash key which region is supposed to be, and then we're using the region star key as the prefix of the, for the row key. Then we're using that prefix, append all these da database table name plus all the primary keys. In that way, for a given primary key for the DB, we can easily figure out what's the row key edge base, so the point lookup can be very fast. Also, for a given table, all these, all these, tab all these rows for same table will be continuously in each region, each, each region boundary, so the sequential scan can be fast. And then since we're using the hash to randomly distribute all these row keys across multiple shards, all the shards have, can have the balance of the road. In addition for the primary key, we also build the secondary keys on top of the same uh, system using the same format. Basically, the prefix for a given secondary index can be also can also get the benefit of the sequential scan performance of HBase. Next, we talk about the versions. So when we replay all these B-log mutations into HBase, the first version we're using the timestamp, the commit timestamp of the B-log mutations. That's a very natural way to leverage HBase multi-version schemas. And, uh, and it's also a very natural way when you want to take a snapshot of the edge base, you can literally get the maximum, like the timestamp you want to snapshot. So um, uh, uh, let's say there's two commits against the same row. The latest commit, the latest commit with, with the higher timestamp will win. And you can even go back to the previous version by specifying the right timestamp. So that's a good way to, to, to get started. So when we launch the system, actually we, we find that one of the biggest lessons we learned from, from this project is the we basically assume the time, the commit timestamp is in the same order as the bin log commit, commit order. That's just like a, it's true in most of cases, but in some cases not necessary. That's why we figure out when we launched the project, we figure out there's a mismatch between the RDS snapshot and the edge based data. The reason for that is, um, the bin log, when the NTP jitter happens, the bin log, the, the transaction has the higher bin log offset, may have a lower timestamp. So the timestamp order and the bin log order may not, may not be aligned. In this case, if we're using the timestamp as a version in edge base, you will get inconsistent result. So by fixing this, we basically have to use the bin log offset as the version in edge base. 
In that way, we can guarantee we have the same semantics as how people replay bin logs in, in RDS in, in MySQL. That actually leads into a new problem or challenge, like how we implement the same um, point-in-time restore semantics in, the, in this new edge-based streaming ETL world. When we, when we take a look at like how MySQL guarantees the point-in-time recovery semantics, they basically replay all the bin log up to the first commit, which is beyond the, uh, beyond the time boundary. Let's say in this example, a uh, uh, user wants to issue a point-in-time recovery to uh, timestamp 102. So they will replay the transaction commits as 101, and they will see the next transaction commit timestamp is already 103, which is beyond the, 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 the time they requested. So the RDS will stop replaying the bin log. So in order to achieve the same semantics in the new system, we basically have to build a secondary index to map the bin log commit offset with the time. So in that way, we can easily figure out what's the first mutation across the PITR boundary and what's the last mutation. And we can use the last mutation's bin log offset as the high watermark and the boundary when we take the snapshots. Okay, um, to recap, so the problem we want to solve is we want to um, get the RDS data into warehouse as soon as possible so people can run and let's, like a new real-time analytics query on top of it. They can create hourly snapshot. And the problem for the initial uh, solution is the point-in-time restore take a much longer time when the database grows. And so we have to use in a streaming way to get all the incremental change into the warehouse. And we believe the new system is more consistent and that they can handle all these new real-time query efficiently. They can create all these hourly snapshots in a very low storage cost, and they can be queried um, very from various like a um, execution engine. Of course, the, uh, we need to continue to work on how to uh, improve how we handle the schema change in the, in the entire pipeline, as Greg mentioned. Yeah, that's pretty much uh, the talk, and uh, thank you all for your time, and we can take some questions.